Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the breakthrough success coach and your powerful presence mentor. Welcome to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the exponential success coach. Yes, I am. Today, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. This is a man I've been waiting to, and I don't know what I was waiting for. I've been waiting to have on my show. Here's a funny thing. When you think of a banker, you don't think of someone like this man. When you think of a bank president, you probably think of someone who's stuffy, all about the numbers, all of that. And that's why I invited, no, throw all that out the window. I've got this amazing human who happens to be the president of Bank of America in New York State. His official title is the local market segment executive for Bank of America's Metro Markets, and he is the New York State president for Bank of America. So that's his title, but there's so much more. And we got to talking about philanthropy and helping people understand not only literacy, but financial literacy. And that's why I wanted to invite Jeff Barker to the show. Jeff, thank you. Thank you for being here. No, thank you very much for inviting me. And thank you for the kind words. Of course. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I have nothing but kind words for you. It's amazing. So you're not the typical or the stereotypical bank president who, you know, you'd think of as being, you know, stuffy and all that stuff. You're so human and you're so accessible. And you showed me pictures of one of your last trips where you were helping to establish a very particular kind of museum in Southern California, even from where you are in New York. So what I'd love to do is to, and I, I love this with all leaders that I, that I interview, I wind back the clock and we go, how'd you start? Because you don't wake up one day and go, <laughs> I don't know, I'm going to be a bank president. Um, and I know that that along the way, you were a grand poobah at Barnes & Noble as well. And I just, I want to know, where did you grow up? Let's start there. Like, really, because early influence matters. Where did you grow up? And what influenced you early? And then how did you get into organizational leadership? Can you bring me or our audience there? Sure. Sure. I'm happy to. And let me start with this one statement I always begin with. I'm approaching 28 years at Bank of America. And this is the last place in the world I ever thought I would work at a bank. <laughs> I also attain a position like this at a bank. So let me just wind it back. Wayne, as you suggested, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, and my family was in the retail business. And in my family, we worked the stores. So we never got allowances. We were always in the stores helping out. And you learn at an early age, customer interaction, leadership, um, you know, working uh, with the public. But that was just the way you know, my life was structured. And we just had a lot of fun. And every, every evening, you know, fortunately, you know, my dad many nights would come home for dinner. And then he had a store that was open every evening, would go back to work. But we talk about customer service issues and just serving the public. I, I went off to, to college. I went, I went to Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. And um, uh, summers, I worked the family business. And at, at that time, my father had had a chain of discount department stores, which he sold. 
And then in the late 60s, early 70s, opened up a jean store, kind of a clothing store for young people. At that time, denim was not accepted in public schools. It was just coming into popularity. The major manufacturers have run very limited distribution. And through connections, we had access to sell Levi's and Lee and the other brand names. So we had a very successful business. It was fun for me because I'd come home summers, I'd run the business, my folks would take the summer off. And uh, it, it was really a great experience. The kind of the goal was never to have me in the retail business, but I figure I had some degree of chromosomal damage because <laughs> I ended up ultimately in what I think is the retail business. But right from college, I went out to graduate school and I went to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And at that time, they were accepting uh, students directly from college. Now, most of the, or virtually all the class comes out of, out of work experience. But you know, back in the 70s, about half the class was out of college, half the class was, uh, was, out, was out of uh, their professional experience. But I had the opportunity, opportunity to do so much more uh, when I was in Wharton and, and you know, went through all the classic business discipline, you know, accounting and finance and marketing and management, whatever. And the summer between my first and second years, I took a job at a major New York City department store. What I saw was that all the big department stores in the country were run by MBAs out of Wharton or Harvard or Stanford. And uh, while most of my classmates were looking at finance and investment banking, this is just you know where my chromosomes took over. And I jumped at the opportunity to come to New York City and work for a major department store here. And I worked for, for someone who ended up you know, leaving and taking out a massive position at another major retailer. But I had a chance to see retailing at a totally different plane that I was used to. And retail is a pretty aggressive business. And I had that kind of aggressive streak. And what I loved about retail is the ability to make a decision and see the results of, those, of that decision almost immediately. You know, mark down the sweaters. From $40 to $19.99, move them to the front of the store, boom. Do they move or do they not move? Not many businesses afford that luxury. And that, in a nutshell, is what I loved about retail. And I remember as I was leaving Wharton, I had a chance to interview with Procter & Gamble. And most business school students go to these informational interviews because they offer wine and whatever. And you beat, and you beat the leader. And they right. say, yeah, please, you have an interesting background. We want to talk to you. And I went to the interview. And um, after about 10 minutes, I said, you know, time out, time out. I said, look, you got a full day. You're here from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m., 50-minute interviews. This is clearly not for me. I understand how long it takes to make changes in the consumer products area. I don't want to move to Cincinnati. Let me give you 45 minutes back. Shook hands. I got a letter two days later saying no one's ever walked out of a Procter & Gamble interview before. You're the kind of person we want in our company. So it's, wow. It was, it was wow. a level of aggressiveness. The funny <laughs> thing is I did have a chance to meet the CEO later in my life. And he said, you probably wouldn't have made it at the company. But the, but I had that kind of aggressive feel to and I Well, so, it's also integrity, right? I mean, you, you I made this time. Yeah. <laughs> right? It was awesome. fun. Uh, it's 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 an interview tip that I would say I I would not suggest people. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I do a talk every twice a year at Columbia Business School, and my friend who's a professor always says, "What's your interview tip?" I said, "Here's one that you don't follow, but it's a lot of fun." Um, but but I left but after graduate school. I went to work for this you know a division of Federated Department Stores, and I was moving very very quickly up the ladder. I remember um, And one thing that was great about department stores is that they acknowledge an individual's inherent skill. 
So you can move from soft goods to hard goods, to store management, to the buying office. So I started off in women's sportswear. Then I moved out to a, a branch store that had a, a problem. And I went from sportswear to domestics, pillows, blankets, sheets, comforters, whatever. I kind of knew, I was just newly married. I knew there were different sizes of beds. I couldn't have told you what they were called, but I had to very learn very quickly. But here was my, here was my situation. I was in the biggest branch store of the company in the worst performing domestics department in the company. Classic turnaround situation. I co-opted the team. I said, look, I don't know anything about your business. You know about your, I'm just here to try to create the right environment for you to run your business. We talked about a lot of the issues. We got them involved in teamwork. I found that there were a lot of products, there were comforters that were thrown into a stock room and I was told we couldn't sell them because they were not bagged properly. I was able to get money. I went to a bag manufacturer. We got markdown money. Boom. Next thing you know, we, we were number one in the company, got the team excited. And that's when I learned something called alignment, that without really being obnoxious in any way, I elevated myself above my peers. There are a lot of people in my position, but somehow I was well-known. People would come to the store you know, and say, where's the guy who took the department from last position to first position? And what did I do? I ran it like it was my own business. You know, within so the key. rules. Yeah. That is so key. I want to ask you a couple of things. Sure, uh, sure. So there were a few things you said, and I've been taking notes along the way. But one of the key things is you just sort of have these beautiful throwaway lines. And when you were working at your father's business, working at the family business, you said, you know, you come home after work and, you know, it was a lot of fun. And it's like pretty much 100% of the people that I've interviewed are like, yeah, I worked in the family business. That was work. It was never fun. It was, you know, there were these expectations and it gets messy. And then I'll fast forward to what you just said. And I don't know if you were taught this or if it is uh, something you just gleaned along the way. A leader who engages a team with real teamwork, like really, really valuing teamwork. There's a lot of lip service to teamwork. You know, I do leadership development and I watch leaders saying, well, of course, we'll collaborate with other divisions. Of course, we'll, you know, if they would do it our way, there would be perfect collaboration, right? And that's the, and they're serious when they say it. And that's the way that they run their teams. Just do your flipping job and everything will be fine. You've come in with a perspective and ears open, willing to make changes, willing not to, like willing to be, the true servant leader before probably before that that term was even invented right so i wanted to ask you about where's your sense of fun come from like was it really fun or did you just that's just part of who you are and so everything's fun like you won't do it if it's not fun and if it's not fun you're going to find a way to make it fun and and then you know teamwork and then and then real alignment i so if you could hit those that would be awesome yeah, this first time I managed a team like that, first I was I was blessed that I was allowed to make mistakes in the family business. So that's very critical. There was nothing I could have done that could have bankrupted the business, but I was allowed to make mistakes. But I remember specifically what happened with that team when I was out, out in that store is they were doing a lot of things incorrectly, and I knew it. But I first wanted to hear from them, why aren't we doing better? How can we be in the number one producing store with the worst producing department? And they voiced complaint after complaint after complaint. 
and we found the root causes. Some were caused by their own performance. I said, well, let me see what I found. And how are we going to, you know, mix and match? And sure enough, we come to an agreement. I'll do this for you. You do that for me. I tried not to elevate myself as a leader. The easiest way to manage is to say, you know, this is what you do tomorrow. The hardest way is to inspire them and get them as part of a group effort. They don't disappoint each other. They don't disappoint me. I think disappointing each other is the critical element. And they work as a team. And this thing just took off. That's amazing. Yeah, right? It was fun. I mean, I, and I say it was fun because how do I get fun? I mean, it's, uh, look at, I'd rather go to a Yankee game, obviously. But it was fun and that you know, to watch people succeed is, is, to me, it's very special. So I'm hoping as our audience listens to and watches this, that you're picking up on key phrases that Jeff is just throwing out there. What you're throwing out are things that are real skills to develop. And that is, you know, I want my team to succeed. And there's what that says is there's very little ego of, you know, I need to succeed. I need to have it. It's like, I want my team to succeed, right? Because when they succeed, everybody wins. And you're, you know, you have this magical ability to kind of zero in on what's important to each person. I've watched you do that at meetings. I've watched you do that, you know, when we're, when we're dressed in suits and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I want, it's, it's incredible. So your ability to see what's important to each individual and, and to enhance that, elevate that. And to, here's what I'm guessing based on what you said, and to make that important to the other people on the team, right? What one, what's important to one person then becomes important mm -hmm. to other team members. I think that's really just so, so incredibly important to be able to see kind of this light and you, you know, you fan this flame and it becomes a true team and you as a leader, don't beat your chest and go, I did that. You go, look, well, what, yeah. look, what it's we a real did. problem with, it's a real problem with management because when a group succeeds, it's always the team. Yeah. And when there's failure, it's always the manager. So it is one of the worst professions we could all go into because you're never, it's, it's unbelievable. So even the other day when we were on a call, a small group of us with the CEO of Bank of America, who held up an award we just received from Euromoney as the best bank in the world. And we said, congratulations, Brian. And his immediate response is, no, it's not me. It's the team. You know, I, we couldn't have done this without all of you. So he can accept their work, but we know when there's a problem, it's the, it's a real challenge with management generally. So. Well, I think accountability is huge. You know, we use that term also in leadership. It's like, it's important to have accountability. And usually where I've seen this go wrong is where accountability means blame. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, you're, you know, I'm holding you accountable versus, versus each individual going, I'm accountable for my space and the people I work with, the people at my shoulders. I'm accountable to them. I, you know, I belong to this team. They matter to me. And that's very different than kind of this gotcha mentality that I've seen and I'm certain you've seen in, in well, so many organizations. Absolutely. So I'm still in the 19, in the 1970s. Yeah. And then um, <laughs> we have 50 years to catch yeah, up. On. And then I, I, I quickly got promoted. I became a buyer. I bought women's large size sportswear, which I knew nothing about. I really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, 
My dad became very ill. I thought I knew a lot about the women's large size sportswear business. I had just come off two years of tremendous success at that job. And I, I made a move. And uh, at that time, I was newly married. My wife and I moved from New York back to, back to New Haven, took over the family business. It was extraordinarily successful for the first two years. I opened up the second business, leveraged myself a little bit. To be honest, it was uh, my second MBA because I, I failed miserably. And I did a lot of things that I look back and I'm just astounded I did in terms of financial projections, make good, good solid management. Um, I believe my own story. And I hit a buzzsaw. The jeans business nationally just, we're going to say timing, designer jeans were just coming into frame. There was one very, very popular brand. The company didn't even have distribution. I would drive to the pier and meet them at a boat, put, stuff them in my car and pay them in a check and then come back. People were waiting for me at the store. We'd sell them at full margin, just phenomenally successful and making good money. And the business fell apart nationally, just like any business. Uh, new entrants, price points came down, uh, distribution increased substantially, discounting took over. And meanwhile, my new business, which was large size sportswear, uh, was heavily leveraged. Interest rates at that time, late 70s, were approaching 20% for prime rate. Right. I was in a massive, massive squeeze. Now I had a child, so things got a little more difficult. So here was all this great success I had, now really has you know, just fallen apart. My dad had passed away, and my mom decided to move to the West Coast. So it was just a complete change. You know, yeah. and and I was able to extricate from the, the businesses, took a personal hit, was personally obligated on some things. Again, I call it my second MBA. It's the real MBA. And then through connections, was able was able to meet up with a company uh, back in the suburban New York area, up near where I live, north of the city, um, that was building, it was a very well-known art material retailer selling to advertising agencies. Uh, commercial artists and, and hobbyists, and they wanted to open a, a chain of art and craft discount stores. And they knew their business didn't know a discount, didn't know, it, know a, an operator. So we, we came to terms. The person ended up being not the best person to work for. I had some signals early on. He was not the right person. But here's another interesting mistake. I was very defensive. I now had two children when I realized things were not going well. Uh, I had just come across a business failure. I was highly risk averse. And I saw the writing on the wall and I saw this ended up going nowhere. So I had four years there. We opened up a couple stores. I was in, it was going absolutely nowhere. And at one point, you know, I look back, say I went to two good schools, the 80s, you know, the economy's booming. And here I am really in a rut. And I just had to make a move. It was just at, at some point, just had to wake up and say, this is not happening. I look back and I say, what would I have done differently? Would I have left a very good job to go help the family? Absolutely, I would do it again. Yeah. I was disappointed in some of my own decision-making, but I think I was clouded by family issues and, and a lot of the dynamic going on. I think, that's, uh, I think that's, um, you know, a lot of people would have chosen to die at their death. Yeah. You know? So my wife and I ended up moving back to Philadelphia. I met her at graduate school. She was in the social work program at the same university. And there was a company at that time was the second largest consumer electronics retailer in America. They did not have stores in New York. I knew them. They're based in Philly. 
they had just sold their business a couple of years ago to a, a UK chain that was the largest uh, retailer in the UK and consumer electronics and appliances. So here I was, I was asked to, to run the Philadelphia market. Now I'm back running a multi-store business. And it was my first time running a commission environment. Now, these people are, in essence, independent contractors. Anybody who's been to an appliance store knows what that's all about. Sure. And, you know, you want product X, they want you to buy product Y because the commission's are large. But I, I had 20 stores right in the home, home area. It was a chain of about, eight, of, of about 350 stores coast to coast. And, you know, what do I do to start? I have to learn the business. I mystery shop every store. In any, in any business, a manager has one opportunity to experience the business the way a customer experiences it. And that's by mystery shopping. So they didn't know who I was. And, and what I noticed immediately is physical plant differences were tremendous store to store. Deviations were tremendous. I had a lot to work with. So outed myself, you know, brought the team together and said, here's what I saw. Let's start with physical plant. What should I expect to see when I walk into a store? I stood up at a whiteboard. They gave me a list of standards that I could not have come up with myself. Wow. They did it. I didn't do it. Oh, yeah. the floor should be clean. All the refrigerators should be on. All the TV should be on to a certain station. The back room should be neat. The refrigerator, the, the break room should be cleaned out every day. I'm right at all that. Your standards, not my standards. And we very quickly established that all the stores need to run the same way and then play with the creativity afterwards. Establish the baseline. And it's kind of a funny story that you know, I went to one store that was near my home and I was in a suit and I went into the public bathroom and it was unbelievably filthy. And I said to the manager, what's going on here? He goes, oh, the janitor is coming in two days. So I proceeded to go home. I walked out, went home, changed into jeans and a t-shirt brought back the appropriate cleaning materials. I didn't say a word, I just went and cleaned it up. And you can imagine from then on in what the bathrooms looked like in every one of my stores. But but I just showed them it's important to, you know, we're not yes. gonna wait two days. Right. There's a sense of urgency and intensity you have when you're running a business. You gotta there's, run the business. There's also a saying that, uh, that decisions around buying are made in two places. Hmm. One is at the front door and your hand on the doorknob. And if you're getting grit and dust, it's like that sets the tone for everything. And the other is the bathroom. And, you know, that's especially true in when I'm, you know, I've done consulting for uh, healthcare professionals. It's especially true there. And I think it really relates to restaurants, you know, and retail. Oh, yeah. So, it's a, absolutely. You know, and that's where I also learned in the commission environment that, the sale is important. The return is even more important. Exactly. Lifetime you know, value is a customer. Somebody can come in and buy a big screen TV and be thrilled, but they come back in and they want to return a $20 item and give them all right done. That's what they're going to talk about when they go home. Yeah. Yeah. Lifetime value is oh. a big deal. Yeah. All right, so you so, were in consumer electronics. So consumer electronics. And that was Philadelphia. I got quickly promoted, as I always do. Yeah. And, and then ended up, I was asked to run the Midwest. So we then had to move to Denver, Colorado. So there passionate places. <laughs> Yeah, at that time, Denver, Denver's a boom and bust. Now, Denver happens to report to me now. And at that time, was running through it. Denver had a difficult place to be. Oil bus had come. It just, but nonetheless, I was responsible for Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, Missouri, places I thought I would never go in my life. 
Yeah. And I learned a lot about geographical diversity. I went into some places and my district manager would say, you're talking too quickly. You know, so they have to slow with that. But then across state lines, you know, we had to make sure that the inspiration was there to all the stores would run the same. They'd look the same. And then let's hang, let's play around with the, with pricing and things on the margins. And, but what did I do? You know, in every one of these markets, I mystery shop the stores, you know, to, to make sure I knew what the customer was experiencing. And there was one other thing we learned that it simplified business is we did a study of six markets and two of, my, two of the markets were mine, Kansas City and Denver, where we looked at decision-making on consumer electronics purchases. And in essence, it was a very elongated decision tree. Did you buy an appliance? Yes, no. You know, who did you speak, you know, and, and just going down the line. And what we determined very quickly, the premise of it was the retail equation with traffic conversion rate, average sale, and every business in the world functions that way. You, your business, when you're out pitching consulting services, how many people are you talking to? What percent agree to have you come? Are you coming for a six-month assignment or is it a one-hour session? You know, so it's oh, conversion rate. Every business, from a candy store to the most senior thing. What we determined in Denver was that we had very, very high conversion rate, very low traffic. That's an easy fix in any retail business. Just start promoting, run more advertising, get people to cross the threshold. Kansas City was a totally different experience. Kansas City, we had very, very low conversion rate, very high traffic. Oh. So we so we sent the mystery shopping team in. They came back with the report. I went to Kansas City, met with my district manager there. We talked about it. We got the managers. We showed the report. Of course, they discounted everything. They said, oh, that person wasn't there that day. That's not true. It never happened, whatever. So I had to solve the problem. So the person that ran Kansas City for me was out of town on vacation. So I was we were in the middle of a real estate deal, and I was there a bit. So I flew in with my wife. And I taught my wife how to shop for a TV. <laughs> she kind of knew how to shop. We all did, but but how to shop for a TV. I gave her a special credit card that she could have used. She could not buy a TV. And what we realized is, and she even used all the signals to buy. But what would happen, I would go into the store dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, say, hey, I'm here for a meeting tomorrow. You know, the ball game in town, I'm going to take it in. And then as I'm there, she would walk in. Of course, no one knew her. And I'd say, hey, go take care of that lady. You know, and then, They'd work with her and she, I said, well, what did she want? She goes, oh, no, I, I told her to come back tonight with her. And she gave signals to buy. But what we learned is they were more concerned about selling the extended service, which wow. paid a large commission. They were about selling the product. But and then we flew back to Denver. I flew back to Kansas City, confronted the team. We put together some safeguards for why that wouldn't happen again. And boom, sales went back. Yeah. But, but again, mystery shopping. I did it with my wife. I put her on the spot, but it was um, the team was was just you know very focused on on something that was inappropriate. But what was happening with this company is it was having some financial issues. The consumer electronics business was dominated by for years by new innovations, microwave ovens, word processors, Walkman, big screen TVs, which you could yeah. sell for a year or so at full margin. And then, of course, the price would go way down. I bought my first calculator, which added, subtracted, multiplied, and divided for $100. The company went through a, a, a turmoil. The British parent company terminated virtually everybody at the company, except for me. And they moved me back to Philadelphia to take over store marketing. But meanwhile, 
I received a phone call from a friend of mine who said Barnes & Noble was looking to build the book business nationally. And Barnes & Noble at the time was a college bookstore division, which many people would know. And, but only and some trades, they become the trades or small stores in New York City area that were really not professionally run. But they were playing around with the superstore, and superstore by today's standard, very, very small. They had one in Detroit, one in Minneapolis, one in New Jersey. They needed someone to run it. It was basically a family business. It took me a few months to make up my mind, but and took them a few months to make up their mind, but boom, the timing was perfect. It was a crazy summer. We moved back to Philadelphia. I was there 30 days. I resigned. I moved from Philadelphia to New York. Also, just to be fair, negotiated safeguards in case the appliance company would sue me for the move, you know, because it probably was disingenuous. But you know, nonetheless, I worked that all into my contract. And there I was running, running a book now, the book business in New York City and Barnes and Noble at the time, really a family business. And I remember going into the store in Rockefeller Center, which at the time was the largest bookstore in America. And the wow. manager just turned to me and said, it's great to have you here. And I can't make this up. She took a calendar and turned six pages and said, you'll be gone on this date because no one has lasted. But That's like challenge accepted. You know, you got it. But yeah. I'll tell you what I did. I went to work every day in a suit and I carried a bag because I was busy, but I wasn't that busy. And whenever I had free time, I took off my suit, put on my work clothes and I worked the stores. And they knew I learned how to bring a cash register. I learned how to, un- how to work the receiving room. I learned how to run the business. First this of all, is, it shows that, that I was part of the team. Yes. But everyone thinks running a bookstore is easy. <laughs> it's when you have 100,000 titles and everything has to be alphabetized and a box comes in and there are 12, you know, 12 different titles and from tw- for 12 different parts of the store. And you have to, and there's finite shelf space. You can't shove another book in there. It's complicated. It is complicated. Dr. Wayne Purnell, Dr. P, would like to invite you to dare to declare that your dreams are worthy. Beyond all of the success you have that got you here, you know you're bigger than the life you're currently living. What have you set aside to get to where you are? Don't you want to wake that back up? It really is possible to explore new dreams and dare to desire without giving up your current path of success. Pop over to Dr. Purnell's free masterclass to help you get from your desire to your destination. www.powerfulpresencemasterclass.com That's powerfulpresencemasterclass.com Dr. P's free masterclass is at www.powerfulpresencemasterclass.com So you've said a couple of things that I think are, again, it's just, it's part of your nature. It's not part of everybody's nature. You know, um, I forget who first coined the term management by walking around, right? Yeah. And it was, um, uh, that might've been Blanchard or one of his ilk. When I was running a psych hospital, I would do the same thing. I would put dates on my calendar where I'd call it DOTF, which for me was down the floor, right? And I'd go down, come out of my dress clothes. I'd be in jeans and a t-shirt and I'd say, I'm working for you today. What are we working on? Right. And it's like, you're what, you know, and it was always shocking that, you know, the administrator was now working 
Um, and so for you, as, as, the, as the, you were regional, right? At that point. Yeah. And, and it's like, and you're working the store, you're working the floor. This is a big deal. That's how you learn. And a lot of people don't choose to take that perspective to actually be in it versus being above it and watching it. And you've got to be both. You've got to be able to be both. And um, somehow, Jeff, like that's been in your nature. And maybe it's because you had the advantage, you know, which may or may not have seemed like an advantage of the, at the time, but the advantage of working in a family business growing up. Yeah, it could be. You know, it's I've all and I said to them, look, you know, your business better than I do. My job is to create the right environment for you to do your job. It's as simple as that. Hmm. That's how I'm successful. So one thing led to another and everybody kind of knows the Barnes and Noble story. Before you know it, I'm running a 200 some odd bookstores with 14 district managers from northern New, northern Vermont down to uh, southern Florida and out to the Mississippi. But again, going back to the basic concept of I have about running a business, it was really a joy at Barnes & Noble. First of all, the product set's phenomenal. There's nothing greater than putting a book in a child's hand. So we Agreed. have to understand that. There's no product set that's better. Agreed. And, but the store in Burlington, Vermont, looked exactly the same as the store in, Bur in Birmingham, Alabama. They were merchandise generally. And you, know, you walk into Birmingham, there are books on football. You walk into Vermont, I'm not so sure there are any, any books on football. And if they were there, they were in the top shelf in the back of the store. So that's, but the stores had to run the same way. Mm -hmm. you, that you, and, and then we can play around in the margins. And it was just a tremendous amount of fun. And I had four years of that, but I could see that kind of the end of the line. And I was being recruited to like every major retailer. But again, after selling books, it's pretty hard to go to selling office supplies. For sure. And then I got, I got a call from a, um, a theater company. I said, maybe there's life after classic retail. But then I did receive a call from a bank. And it was a predecessor to your bank mergers were proliferating. Oh, yeah. And it was a, a, a UK bank, very good market share in New York City. But they, there was a move in the 90s to bring retailers into banking. So after really six months of, of discussions and I went on the field with, with other leaders, I signed on. I gave Barnes and Noble six weeks notice. I took a week off. In that week, this UK company decided it was selling its US business. So like another interesting point, Barnes and Noble said, keep working here, you know, but the bank said, look, we'll make a financial arrangement if, if this thing doesn't work out for you. But now I'm walking in, I'm running New York City for a financial, I know zero about banking. Amazing. Um, and and this, this is the biggest division they have. And everyone's worried about their jobs, but we still have a business to run. Yeah. So, so again, what do I do? I shop every branch. Fantastic. And, yeah. I, and, and, and then I go back and then I went back as, you know, in a suit and I asked everyone the same question. How do you know if you're successful? And what I found was they were, the answers were rooted in, in the future. At the end of the year, I'll go on the trip. The balances will, will be bigger. No one spoke in my language. I will do better today than I did yesterday. Mm. I have the best people working here who get promoted. I have customers who love to come here because we operate so well. They, they, they weren't thinking that way. So brought them together, did what I did you know, years ago. We started to track 
customer interactions. Um, this is really computers were not they were in place, but not like we have today. How many people are walking in? How many are going to the tellers? How many are going over to see a salesperson? What percent? Just tick marks. And then we started to compare and people became conscious of their day-to-day numbers. Because I grew up ringing a cash register. Yeah. And I grew up taking subtotals midday. And we were in the appliance business. We'd say, hey, Mark, we're not doing well today. Let's, let's have a negotiable sales floor tonight. Let's do a little wheeling and dealing and drive the volume up, drive the margin down. So I'm used to that day-to-day. And we established that. And the bank was sold to a major Northeastern bank, Fleet Bank. Uh, they kept me on again to run a portion of New York City. Fleet also had this program of, well, then in 2000, I, I was elevated to the market president position. We um, wanted to make what then was a, a regional bank, New England Bank, kind of small. And would do that by assigning a person in each major city to be the president uh, and handle all of the philanthropy locally and handle all of the interactions with elected officials, whatever, um, and act as the official spokesperson for the bank. And then in 2004, we were sold to Bank of America. So there. So now I flip a switch. I'm running 500 branches Mm. through 14 people. There were 10 of us running the country. And there were moments I said, I'm like running Bank of America, I'm running the New York Metropolitan Area for Bank of America. But I never really considered it banking. It's how are we handling the customer each and every day and establishing consistency. And you know, it's a regulated company. But I think what I did, Wayne, is I looked at my own background and said, I was, I think I was a pretty good merchant. But I'm probably a better leader of teams. And, and a lot of folks said, how could you run a bank? You know, I said, well, the same thing. They said to me, how could you run bookstores? How could you run appliance stores? It's the same job. You know, I'm a general manager. I have lots of people in lots of locations. Uh, a little more challenging when they were across the country. But um, lots of people in lots of locations. And uh, I just create a right environment for them to do their job. That's and, huge. I, I don't know. want that to be thrown away because you said that a few times and you know it's i'm gonna i'm gonna find your quote because that's it's one my job is to create the right environment for you to do your job and that is that is absolutely showing up in the show notes because like how many leaders really think that way and even as parents how do we like that's a beautiful statement to make my job is to create the right environment as a parent for you, my children, to do your job, right? Which is to learn, to grow, to be respectful, all those things, right? So my job as a leader of an organization or of a division or of a team is to create the right environment. I love that, all of it, all of it. It's amazing. Yeah, well, it's, and then um, about eight years ago, I left the consumer bank and I went to be the full-time market president, uh, state president. And um, we work in the philanthropy and market and sponsorships and then was asked to work with now 31 other cities around the country. So it's a different kind of management. You know, I don't have numbers per se, but we do. We have budgets. We have philanthropic budgets and sponsorship budgets. And we the philosophy of Bank of America is to run the company through the local markets. So we try to establish that local feel. Yeah. Um, and, and we have 93 markets. So 31 of them report up to me. And again, I run the business consistently, but the decisions being made in philanthropy in San Diego 
are not the same decisions being made in Hartford, Connecticut. We have right. some guidelines, but let's play on those guidelines, but let's all run the business consistently, how we handle ourselves, meetings, how we work with our teammates. And um, in my organization total, there are about 40,000 people in the, in the markets that I, uh, that, that I supervise. So Amazing. it's a long story, but somehow I got here. I love that. And, and thank you for sharing your story. You're not done yet with your story because a good portion of that you, you just touched on, which is uh, philanthropy. Yeah. Right? And, and I know one of your, uh, it's almost like a love of yours, I believe, is financial literacy as well as the arts. And um, if you could just talk a little bit, we have a couple minutes left here. If you could just talk a little bit about what is needed in the world of financial literacy and what are you doing for that? Just talk a little bit about that because I think Bank of America has a beautiful program for education. And then um, really enhancement of the arts. I mean, what you showed me, I, I would love for you to just to talk about a little bit. Too. Sure, sure. Um, well, our philanthropy, it would be very easy for an organization of our size to write a big check out of the main office, which is Charlotte, North Carolina, and to support an organization across the country. Instead, what we do is parse out a good amount of money, about $300 million to the local markets. And under some guidelines, they do what's right for your community. So serving the homeless could be more important in City X, but you know, it could be another issue with food insecurity in, in City Y. But throughout that all is this community development um, and, and support for the arts is a critical element, it's a critical component of that. But access is the key. So you know, we have Museums on Us program where Bank of America customers get free admission to museums one weekend per month. Um, we have an art conservation program where every year we pick about 25 works and we pay for their conservation, but it provides access. We bring people. But the, the specific issue you're talking about, it really ties into economic mobility perfectly. And um, about four years ago, I was asked to, we have a program called Anchor Grants where we have a, a, not a substantial budget, but a nice size budget where we could really make an appreciable difference with a capital investment in an organization. We, um, whether it's building a new wing of a, of a hospital or providing an educational center or whatever it may be, uh, all tied into economic, economic mobility and advancing racial equality. But um, I was asked to visit with the team in Riverside, California, uh, because there was an, uh, a library that was being relocated in, in, in the downtown. And it was really kind of a classic 1970s building and now vacant and looked terrible. But Cheech Marin of the of Cheech and Chong fame, little did I know, um, has the largest collection of Chicano art probably in the world. And it's very valuable. And he's been lending it out to museums worldwide. And the idea was under the um, direction of the Riverside Art Gallery, they would take over this, this library, convert it to a, to a museum, convert it to the Cheech Center of uh, Chicano art and culture. And state of California was involved City of Riverside was involved. We made the largest corporate donation. And uh, I, four years later, you know, there I was out in Riverside uh, at the ribbon cutting with Cheech and a bunch of my teammates and, and elected officials. And what it's done is it's created this incredible cultural center that people are coming to from all over. It's just a phenomenal museum. But so it's not just, but it's not just giving the money to make, it's what, what, what do we do with it? 
So we're ho- we hosted a team meeting in there. Um, we're supporting their ongoing programming. There's a summer camp working there. It's it's activation, what we call it, and that's, that's really it. critical. And and okay. we try to do that around the country and, and make that kind of a difference. It's very easy to just write a check and say see you later, you know, pay dues to a chamber. We go back in the chamber and say well, I'll give you your dues check, but here's what I want you to do instead: is let's do a whole program on sustainability, environmental investing, whatever it may be. Let's we have the thought leadership that we can we can help the community in terms of financial literacy there are really two ways to approach it i think bankers generally don't speak particularly well so how many seminars have there been at at organizations where a banker would go in and give a whole spiel about what people shouldn't shouldn't do so uh, there are two ways we've approached it Uh, number one is we contracted with the Khan academy which is a that and, and the Khan academy is the online resource very interesting way of presenting learning, whether it's on the arts or math or language, whatever it may be, students have used the Khan Academy for long. And through Sal Khan and our team, we put together a whole series of modules now in both English and Spanish. And we have trained champions who will go to organizations and work side by side. We'll show the modules and we'll talk it through. But it kind of eliminates that discrepancy in presentation that you have so often. Um, the other thing we've done is design a series of consumer products um, that basically will kind of force the customer into better money habits. And by the way, bettermoneyhabits.com, everybody's welcome to it. Millions and millions and millions of, of viewership. But um, so in essence, we have a whole series of, of products where, um, and through our customer service, customer, customer research, we determined that one of the biggest Issues is people concerned about overdrafts. So we've designed a consumer checking account where individual really can't be overdrawn, doesn't allow it. We also have eliminated overdraft fees, virtually eliminated overdraft fees for all other accounts. We have a a basic starting credit card people can get into. Uh, we have a home ownership program where folks can buy a house as little as three percent down, and we will for certain house, houses and certain types of clientele. We'll give them the money for the down payment. So we're saying we can we can teach it, but if we can't teach it, let's design a whole series of products that will take people up the continuum from the very very first checking account up to home ownership while protecting them along the way. So and that, it, that's it's a multi- real important aspect of what we do at Bank of America. That's huge. That's multi generational. Then yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, I love that. And bettermoneyhabits.com, which is it. awesome. Awesome. Um, Jeff, amazing. If if people wanted more information about any of what you talked about, uh, where should they go? Well, anywhere in the Bank of America website, there's tons of information, but they're also, you know, they can link in um, to me. They can follow me on Twitter because I tweet a lot. Do Um, you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I promote our stuff. I, I go through I go through phases right. <laughs> Usually, when I'm out in the community uh, doing a presentation, I will I will tweet a lot. But I but I think your, LinkedIn. Okay, so LinkedIn will. Uh, well, LinkedIn's a great way. I'm happy to link in and take questions through there. Okay, and then and Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? Jeff Barker NY. Jeff Barker NY for New York, as in the Yankees. So uh, the Yankees, correct. <laughs> 
this is awesome. Thank you. Is there anything that I should have asked you or that you were hoping that we would cover that we didn't get a chance to cover? I think the one thing I tell people is look at their vibes in concentric circles. You know, and I could have easily said, I'm a bookseller and that's what I'm going to do. But, you know, I realized I'm a general manager, you know, and, you know, I, my son's a commercial in the commercial real estate business. So he's really not. He's a consultant to businesses who are trying to make decisions through real estate. When you think in broader terms, opportunities will come. And I think a lot of folks just pigeonhole themselves. And we have an opportunity at Bank of America to move to various disciplines. Like I could leave and go into business banking or wealth management. This stage of my career, I'm not going yet, but a lot of our teammates do. So they don't get pigeonholed and put into, into one particular area. That's going back to what I said in department stores. You know, I went from clothing to hard goods, back to clothing. I would have gone somewhere else. I could have gone to store management. But all the time developing those inherent business skills. And that's what you have to try to maximize. Everything you've said is just so valuable. You know, people take it for granted about leadership and people skills and, and all those things that it's like, well, you know, people skills are just, you know, they need to just follow the leader. And it's for you, it's not top down for you. It's um, yes, there is a leader, but this leader steps in and learns the business. This leader steps in and rolls up his sleeves. Yeah. This is fabulous. So yeah, I really, yeah, I was just as a side, I have a very difficult business issue now that we're trying to work through. And I was on a call yesterday with some teammates who were directly affected. I said, you guys are going to help me with the solution, not me. So we're going to set up a program. They're going to meet as a group. They're going to come back with their suggestions on how we solve the problem. Ultimately, it will be exactly where I want it to be. You yeah. know, and they, there may be some nuances, but they're going to feel as if we're all part of a team and we solve it together. That's so, amazing. Right, it's, and, and that's and that's how we kind of drive employee favorability. Love it, I love it. Ah, thank you for being here. No, really. it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Of course, yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time in coming. Thank you. All right, my guest today, Jeff Barker, uh, president of the New York State uh, Bank of America, and this is one sharp sword cutting through to what matters most. I'm your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the Exponential Success Coach. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to One Sharp Sword, cutting through to what matters most with your host, Dr. P, Dr. Wayne Purnell, the Breakthrough Success Coach and your powerful presence mentor. 